0: Tonight, for our 184th episode, we discuss the sci-fi thriller Gravity from 2013, celebrating its 10th anniversary. Directed and written by Alfonso Cuarón, co-written with Jonas Cuarón. Music by Stephen Price, starring Sandra Bullock as Dr. Ryan Stone. George Clooney as Lieutenant Matthew Matt Kowalski. Ed Harris as the voice of Mission Control. Or to Ignatiusen as... Inan Gok, try saying that five times fast, Faldit Sharma as Sharif Dasari, Amy Warren as the captain of Explorer, and Basher Savage as the voice of the captain of the International Space Station. Recognition for this movie? Gravity was wide released on October 4th, 2013, and emerged as one of the most successful sci-fi films of all time. It was also the biggest box office hit of both Sandra Bullock and George Clooney's careers became the highest-grossing feature film in October history, surpassing the animated Puss in Boots and holding the record until 2019's Joker, which I think might be the only R-rated billion-dollar film to this point. I know it held the record for highest-grossing R-rated film at one point, but it may be up there. Bullock's previous highest-grossing film was Speed at $350 while Clooney's benchmark was Ocean's Eleven at $450 million. The film would receive near-universal praise from critics in the industry and was eventually nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Actress for Sandra Bullock, Production Design, and Winning for Best Director for Alfonso Cuaron, Cinematography, Visual Effects, Film Editing, Original Score, Sound Editing, and Sound Mixing. Gravity currently holds a 96% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 96 score on Metacritic, and a 3.5 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So Dad, as we start every week, what is your relationship to this movie? I have none. This is the first time I've seen it. Wow. Amazing. A sci-fi fantasy film that this is only the first time that you're seeing it because I forced you to watch it for the show? Yes. Why do you have such a hard time with sci-fi fantasy movies? I don't know.
1: They're just not my thing, and so I'm just not drawn to them. I've got enough stuff to keep me busy, and so I don't go out of my way to watch them.
0: I mean, if I gave you the choice between a biopic and a sci-fi fantasy film, particularly in space, are you picking the biopic 99 out of 100 times? Depends on who's the the biopic. I mean, if you're doing a biopic of Joseph Goebbels, probably not. Okay, so having never seen this movie, if I would have asked you a week ago whether you wanted to watch Gandhi or this, what are you picking? (laughs) I haven't seen Gandhi. I I
1: think I watched it one other time after I saw it in the theater. Gandhi baked
0: is good. Probably Gandhi. You're still picking the three hour biopic that you've claimed. Why is there 15 minutes of him just riding on top of a train? Yes. Just watching Ben Kingsley starve for three hours (laughs) is more entertaining than this 90 minute thriller. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just not. I mean, that's why I'm bringing somebody else on for like all of the like true fantasy movies. When we do Lord of the Rings, I've got somebody else already plan to come in because I, I mean yeah I, I just those are too big of, of a movie to let you kind of come in here like a wet rag I uh, have
1: watched the films I have been very cognizant of my own feelings on them and I think I've been fair
0: tell that to 2001 a space odyssey Well, oh, I'm sorry but I thought it was boring It's our second highest uh, downloaded episode of the season. Okay. (laughs) Only surpassed by Vertigo, which we also kind of shit on. I don't know. So then what do you think this movie is
1: about? Overcoming adversity. The desire
0: to live, to survive. Yeah, I think a big part of what I took away from this movie is the survival instinct and how having a specific purpose, I'll go back to something that, you know, as much as the country often makes fun of Joe Biden, this is a guy who at least I have a a good modicum of respect for given the amount of tragedy he's experienced in his life. And during the 2020 campaign, he specifically said something about finding purpose to help you continue on. Like, the only way to handle adversity or tragedy is to find new purpose in life. Now, his was in public service, and obviously he's gone on to be the president, etc., cetera, et cetera. But I think in this movie, I would relate her drive eventually when she has the hallucination with George Clooney's character coming back temporarily as the switch within her that drives her to survive. And in essence, when you're pushed to try and survive, you have to let go of all of the things from your past, both literally and metaphorically, because that becomes the all important thing is just getting to the point where you're safe. And so I think while we don't know a lot about her backstory as a character, we don't know a lot about any of their backstories. That becomes the all-encompassing point why you relate to the struggle she's going through during the movie.
1: When I did more work outside of social security disability, I would always use an analogy when I'm working with clients who are dealing with either a tragic accident and they're trying to get by or they're in the middle of a divorce proceeding. I would I would discuss as if... You know, these are what's important. You need to establish housing, communications, and food and water for survival. So we need to make arrangements for where you're going to live, how you're going to be able to communicate so that you have an actual phone that's working or something like that, and how you're going to set yourself up financially in order to purchase food and water to survive. And I always talked about that, like FEMA comes in. The first thing they do is they establish shelter, they establish food and water, and they establish uh, communications. And then everything else is built off those. When you're in a situation like this, you have to figure out what resources you have, and everything else is superfluous. So she needed oxygen, she needed Uh, a way to move from ship to ship in order to ultimately get into the pod to launch back to earth. And so everything had to fit within the confines of that
0: and to be used in that manner and means. It it kind of follows the same structure as a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, not to get, of course, too philosophical as I often do on this program. And you've made fun of me for, for repeatedly bringing up, but, Food, water, shelter, space is the bottom rung. Number two is security. You're absolutely correct that you have to forget everything else and break it down to its basest needs. She's not going to have security throughout most of this journey until the final descent and she's back on Earth. But at least if she can maintain the basic needs portion of the pyramid, there's something to work with that she can move forward. And I think that's part of why this film works the way it does. You empathize with the character. You put yourself in those shoes. You wonder what you would do in the same scenario. And it kind of puts you in a POV like view within the movie. Okay. So do you want to give a little bit more background on the movie? Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Gravity is a cinematic
1: tour de force that plunges audiences into the relentless, unforgiving expanse of outer space. Directed by visionary filmmaker Alfonso Cuarón, this space odyssey is a heart-pounding, visual, stunning masterpiece that redefines the limits of human survival and the art of filmmaking. The story unfolds high above Earth's surface where Dr. Ryan Stone, Sandra Bullock, and veteran astronaut Matt Kowalski, George Clooney, are on a routine spacewalk to repair the Hubble Space Telescope. However, their mission takes a catastrophic turn when debris from a, a destroyed satellite hurdles toward them, leaving their shuttle destroyed and the two astronauts stranded in the vast, merciless ...void of space. Caron's genius lies in his ability to create an immersive experience that captures the terrifying isolation of space. The film's breathtaking cinematography, led by Manuel Lubetsky, pulls viewers into the weightlessness and disorienting chaos of the cosmos. Through seemingly unbroken and mesmerizing long takes, Caron allows us to witness the beauty and terror of space emphasizing the fragility of human life in the face of the universe's sheer indifference. Gravity is more than just a technical marvel. It's a mediation on the human spirit's resilience in the face of insurmountable odds. Driven by Stone's determination and guided by Kowalski's wisdom, the film explores themes of survival, rebirth, and the indomitable will to overcome adversity. It's a gripping tale of human vulnerability and the quest for home and meaning amidst the
0: vastness of space. Thank you. Did you know? The film's cascade of debris is a very real possibility. This scenario is known as the Kessler Syndrome, named after NASA scientist Donald J. Kessler, who first proposed the theory in 1978. A cascading Kessler Syndrome involving an object the size of the International Space Station would trigger a catastrophic chain reaction of debris. The orbiting debris field would make it impossible to launch space exploration missions or satellites for many decades. Did you know? There are several references to Kowalski's hopes of breaking Anatoly Solovyev's EVA record. This is not, however, for a single spacewalk, as of the end of 2014, that is jointly held by Susan Helms and James S. Voss at 8 hours, 56 minutes. But to the cumulative duration over a career, between July 17th, 1990 and January 14th, 1998, Salavyev carried out 16 EVAs on four separate missions, with a total time of 79 hours, 51 minutes. Did you know? For most of Sander Bullock's shots, she was placed inside a giant mechanical rig. Getting into the rig took a significant amount of time, so she chose to stay in it for up to 10 hours a day, communicating with others through a headset. Alfonso Cuaron said his biggest challenge was to make the set feel as inviting and non-claustrophobic as possible. The team attempted to do this by having a celebration each day when Bullock arrived. They named the rig Sandy's Cage and gave it a lighted sign. Did you know? Because there is no up or down in space, the opening 12 minute scene was originally rotated 180 degrees, but an off the cuff decision to play it back upside down was made, and Alfonso Cuaron liked it so much he decided to keep it upside down in the official cut. Did you know? When the script was finalized, Alfonso Cuaron assumed it would take about a year to complete the film, but it actually took four and a half years. And with that, we'll take our first break and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week for our 185th episode, we discuss the crime thriller, Touch of Evil, from 1958, celebrating its 65th anniversary. Directed and written by Orson Welles, co-written with Witt Masterson, Paul Monish, and Franklin Cohen. Music by Henry Mancini, starring Charlton Heston, Orson Welles, Janet Leigh, Marlena Dietrich, and your favorite, Zsa, Zsa Gabor. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. I was partial to Ava as well. Well, that's because you were a big Green Acres fan, right? Yes, I was. Best performance is up. I'll go first. I had Emmanuel Lubezki, the cinematographer. I think some of the visuals in this film are absolutely stunning just watching kind of the expanse of things. And I know that a lot of the background and the projections of space had to be done somewhat digitally as obviously they weren't going to go into space to film it. But I still think the camera rigging and when you're kind of following her face as she's like hurtling through space on the numerous occasions throughout the course of this film or when they crash into the International Space Station, those are just some awesome views. And then with the backdrop of earth, always being kind of there reminding you that that's where they're trying to go. I think what he did with through the course of this film, because there aren't a lot of lines to deliver. I think for the most part, this is a visual movie. So most of this is conveyed as a viewpoint as opposed to something that's said. And so for me, because of that, We don't often nominate cinematographers, but I felt this one was appropriate. I have him as my secondary
1: performance. I have Coron as the primary simply because he had so much to do with the pacing, the structure of the film, the tension building, all of that, as well as his contribution on the script and how it was all going to be played.
0: I definitely get that, and I was divided whether to nominate him at all. I thought there were a lot of places you could go during the course of this film. I didn't end up nominating him for anything, but I certainly don't fault you for doing so, because this is kind of his brainchild. Secondary for me was um, Sandra Bullock. I thought that if she hadn't won for the blind side a couple of years before this, She could have very easily walked away with the statue for this one, and I don't think anyone would have had a problem. She is fantastic in this film. From the survival instinct aspect to the fear and terror and kind of narrating her own way through the film, given that she doesn't have really anybody to talk to for quite a while, but you feel her anguish, you feel her pain, the stress that she's under, the way that her hand just waves around, especially in the Chinese capsule, because it was one thing when it was in the Russian capsule, and she's just trying to figure out by almost like Lego pictures on how to assemble something, how to fly the capsule. But when it gets to the Chinese one, you're just like, "Oh shit!" You know, I I would never be able to personally figure that out.
1: Yeah, so I mean, there are certain things that you can train for, and there are certain things that you just can't. And I can't imagine that there was a whole lot of potential training done on how to fly a Russian
0: and Chinese spacecraft. Or that you had to take lessons in both of those languages to be able to survive in space. Yes. Most charismatic, I'm going to go a little bit off the board This is something I don't think we've ever nominated before, but I'm going with the production design because of how, again, this movie looks. It's visually stunning. The set pieces that have to be a part of this all have a very intricate working for how this movie has to break down. She has very either wide open or very finite spaces and you have to get them all right. And From what I can read, the accuracy level of how the International Space Station looks was exceptional, down to some very minute details. And again, for a visual film to get this much level of detail right about something that would be in other movies, decent movies, but not necessarily great movies, overlooked. It's an aspect that I felt was warranted to try and go in a different avenue than we normally do because we don't have a lot of like actor choices to pick from in this kind of movie. All right.
1: I went with Sandra Bullock because I think as a star, as a movie star herself, that's how she's able to carry it off more than anything. I think if you would have put somebody without her level of charisma and just charm that flows from her just presence on the screen, the performance would have been flat. You would not have had as much empathy towards her or interest in her character. She has a certain star power that she's able to carry the film. She has both a toughness and a vulnerability at the same time that just came out despite the fact that half the time you couldn't see her face visually very well behind the space suit. I thought that was a difficult situation to try to convey as an actor. And I thought she did a very admirable job, which is probably why she was nominated for an Academy.
0: Let's move to best scene. Then I have eight down, so I'll go with the opening. I have a bad feeling and Kowalski describing all these stories, I think that's a great way to kind of shoot us into the movie without necessarily putting us right at the moment where everything starts to melt down. Then I have the debris field, so them actually dodging all of the debris as it's kind of going about her starting to hurtle into space and all that that entailed, the, the harrowing nature of that one particular moment. Then I have her floating out in space on her own, eventually being rescued by Matt. Then I have letting Matt go. So in combination with them getting to the International Space Station and her getting hooked on the ropes, but him having to let go and basically sacrifice himself to let her survive. Her time inside the International Space Station and then kind of figuring out how to get away from it. The Soyuz, which was the Russian ship and her time trying to pilot that, which includes also the point where it gets stuck trying to get away from the International Space Station. I thought that was important to include. I have Going Home, which is her ejection in the Chinese spacecraft. And then the kind of epilogue of the film where she gets up on the beach So there's the moment she splashes down in a very lucky like a lake or a pond or something and then getting out into the, I don't know, the beach area, whatever that sandy space was just off of the lake or stream that she was in. Did you have any other ones to supplement this? No, I did not. I was going to say, I think I covered most of the major points of the film with those eight. Out of those, what would you consider the best scene of the movie? I think it's the uh, the
1: debris field and everything going on because it's the most tense. It changes the dynamic of the movie, creating a tension that lasts throughout the rest of the film. I thought it was very well done and did a nice job of setting the stage for how the movie was
0: going to function, how it was going to operate from that point on. I went in a slightly similar vein, but just a slightly different scene. So I have her floating off into space. So just after the debris field, which we have the obviously intense feelings of the debris field moments, but when she's floating off in space, all I can think of whenever I see that scene is, oh my God, your empathy towards her has to come out because you immediately put yourself in the place of if i was lost in space hurtling in a direction that you never know when you're, where your body will end up because there's nothing to stop it an object in motion will remain in motion unless there's something to stop it she could literally hurtle through space forever and <laughs> you know where where does this journey end for her that to me is always going to stick out and the way that they deal with this, both from her as an actress and through the story making, I thought was one of the unique parts of the film, because obviously she gets rescued and then we go through this whole other thing. But it's that moment of just sheer terror when she's floating off in space by herself. She's lost all communication that I thought was probably one of the most harrowing moments of the film for me. And that's why I also nominated it as my favorite scene. Well, I nominated the debris
1: situation as my favorite scene as well. I mean, you start feeling the dead, the other dead astronauts from the Explorer, and all of the feeling of how, how did we survive? They didn't, etc.
0: So that takes us to most indelible moment.
1: What did you have down?
0: Kowalski's sacrifice
1: when he lets go. It's a moment of sheer. It's the word I'm looking for magnanimity, I mean, the sacrifice he gives in order to help her or allow her to live was kind of a, I don't know, just
0: it, it was touching, I guess. I had the actual touchdown at the end because the relief as an audience you feel with her that she's finally back on Earth, and while, yes, you have to kind of swim up and whatever else. And she got very lucky at where it actually landed. One, that it landed in a body of water. Two, that it was in a very shallow body of water. The relief to be on the shore, breathing solid oxygen on terra firma in some regard, to me, that will always stick out. And when thinking back on this film, before we were going to watch it, it was one of the few things that, really stuck out in my mind, other than George Clooney dying. Yes. So with that, we will take our second break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley Rubric in a minute, if you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list, that is every graded movie we've ever discussed on the show, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show Or you can go to com backslash podcast and find it as the top entry on the Greatest Movies of All Time podcast show page. That has the grades we've done so far for all 171 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Sandra Dorsey,
1: American actress and acting instructor, was in... uh Sleepaway Camp 3, Teenage Wasteland, Gordy, Dumb and Dumber 2, Director and Writer also. And Sir Michael Gambone, 82, Irish-English actor, Harry Potter, Gotsford Park, The Singing Detective, a four-time BAFTA winner and one of the founding members
0: of the National uh, Theatre in London with Laurence Olivier. I think he's most notable for most people, especially my generation, as the actor that took over for the late Richard Harris in the Harry Potter films as Dumbledore. He has some notoriety there, and I saw a lot of the fan outpouring this week in, in regards to him. But otherwise, we recognize and commemorate these for their contributions to the arts with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. Let's move to best funniest lines. Matt Kowalski. So what do you like about being up here? Ryan Stone. The silence. Matt Kowalski. You
1: got to plant both of your feet on the ground and start living life. Kowalski.
0: You've got to learn to let go. That's all I hid. Kowalski. Houston, I have a bad feeling about this mission. Mission Control. Please elaborate. Well, it reminds me of a story. Kowalski again. I know I'm devastatingly good-looking, but you gotta stop staring at me. And finally, Kowalski, looking up at Earth. Well, you've gotta admit one thing. Can't beat the view. All right, let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. Do you wanna go first or second? Uh, go ahead. So, I think this is still a significant movie within the industry because we now have a two-time Best Director winner. In the 2000s, there are only three of them, and all of them are international at this point. It is him, it is Inaritu, and it is Ang Lee. So you could say, arguably, he's had one of the more successful awards careers, although he hasn't made a ton of movies outside of this one and Roma, that was his other best director win, at least in the last 10 to 15 years. But this is also one of the better performing sci-fi movies. It is a fairly simple story by that regard. And so you could say, even though Hollywood has not been producing a lot of movies like this, where they would pump in $150 million into this kind of movie, it still was successful and provides at least a roadmap to eventual success if Hollywood got back into non IP story making at some point. Like, I could very much see this being an Apple TV plus type of movie or an Amazon project at some point down the road. I don't think they make this nearly as well, but it's something that I think could be the template moving forward for stuff that can be successful or has been successful without necessarily being about Jedi or Iron Man. So I gave that a four on the audience side of things, though, as big as this was at the time, because I do remember a lot of people that I knew had gone to the film and had seen the film in theaters. This is not something that I think anybody has talked about since 2013. I think because it's still recent enough, there's still a familiarity with the movie or at least the concept and who was in it. But by comparison to some other movies of the time, this just doesn't have the same level of staying power. So I went with a completely down the middle 2.5 and I have a 6.5 overall.
1: I have the industry as a 3.5 and I have many of the same points that you made in mind. For having two best director awards, it's not like there's a big line of producers uh, hiring Corone to uh, do their
0: next big film. So I don't. There think wouldn't it's had- be because he does his own projects and he produces his own stuff. So I don't think that's a point against him.
1: Uh, but I don't think it has. It's not a point in favor of him either. Sure
0: it is. His other big fame film was for Netflix. Like, he was one of the few people they sought out because they were looking to get in the awards game. Okay. It's probably the closest that Netflix has actually come to having a Best Picture winner.
1: Anyway, I guess um, I, I have a 3.5 for the industry simply because I don't think it's really it, it's considered, obviously by the industry well done, and the cinematography was great. There has not been a huge influx of space movies since. It's just kind of there. It just didn't have within the industry a staying power for anything more than a 3.5. For the public, I had a 3. I think it's a film that when you mention people remember it, uh, they remember going and seeing it, but it's not, again, a film that people clamored rewatch or is listed as one of some or anybody's favorite films or greatest films or
0: anything like that. So I have a 6.5. So that's a 6.5 average between the two of us. Impact and significance. Go ahead.
1: For the industry, I think the number of Academy Award nominations and uh, the ones that actually won was is significant. I'm giving it a 5 for the industry. And the fact that this was a huge moneymaker, a film that uh, a lot of people went to the theaters to see and was the highest grossing film for both Bullock and
0: Clooney. I think it's a five, so it's 10 overall. So, on the one hand, from an industry standpoint, it does get a lot of credit for being nominated for the most awards in a given year, for being heavily actually awarded, and for a while, this was probably the odds-on favorite to win Best Picture. It is one of the tightest Oscar Best Picture races that I can remember. I think it's the only time that the Producers Guild has ever produced a split decision between its two winners, and there was real enthusiasm from the viewing public, which of these two two films would come out ahead. The other one being a film we discussed earlier this year with Allison, 12 Years This Slave." Now, obviously, that one came out on top, but I, because it didn't quite get to Best Picture, I think it does affect its stature within the industry a little bit. So I only got to a 4.5. On the audience side of things, this is the much tougher thing to judge for me there are people that I never would have thought would go out and see this film that I knew of. Now, some of this is anecdotal and I criticize you often for just, Oh, you can't be necessarily so anecdotal of one or two people, but I know of at least a good handful of people that saw this movie in theaters. And this was a bit of a craze at the time to go and watch this kind of film because this isn't something that most people would just run out and see because, a space movie that doesn't have Jedi or superheroes or whatever is not the type of thing that I would have expected young people to necessarily go to. But for whatever reason, it was the only movies that finished ahead of this frozen iron man, three despicable me two, the hobbit hunger games, fast and furious and monsters university, all IP level stuff or in frozen's case, uh, an animated film that obviously like well outpaced what it was expected to do by Disney animation as opposed to Pixar and became this like whole other thing outside of it. (laughs) But it still produced more money than a Thor movie, a Superman movie, Oz, the great and powerful Star Trek into darkness, the Wolverine, it produced more money almost combined than most of the rest of the other Oscar nominees that year, with the exception being one of the other ones we covered earlier this season as well, the Wolf of Wall Street. I'm not sure I can quite go to the level of a five. This isn't Jaws. It's not Star Wars. It's not sound of music. And the step below that might be stuff. That's like really high producing, high grossing kind of comes out of nowhere, creates a huge craze. I'm not quite sure I'm at that level either, so I put it at a 4 for an 8.5.
1: Boy, I don't know. I mean, when you consider, I mean, it's one thing to see a billion-dollar movie that's a superhero or animated, considering the numbers that this thing drew for a straight sci-fi thriller.
0: um, But that's not what this covers as that is a point in its favor for other things, but it's not necessarily its impact. When I think of a 10 and this is now the third time in like the last two months, you've tried to throw out a 10 on impact and significance. And my answer is always the same. It's not Titanic. It's not Jurassic park. It's not jaws. It's not star Wars. It's not Terminator two. Like some of the biggest movies that literally changed how movies were perceived jaws almost should be 10.5 for how much that changed cinema and cinema going. So I just can't quite put it on those levels when you're talking, the audiences being around the blocks for months or Raiders of the lost Ark being the number one film for almost an entire calendar year weekly. Okay. So it's just not quite on that level.
1: I'll drop my public from a 5 to a 4.5 on those notes. But still, to see this level of gross revenue for this type of film, I think the public really found this to be a significant film for them. So I'm at a
0: 9.5. So that's a 9 average between the two of us. Novelty? We've seen a lot of space disaster films. In fact, space disaster films seem to be the only things that we see in space outside of Jedi. True. But very rarely do they have very natural space disasters, and they're very rarely, if ever, this grounded or this realistic, and they're never with this level of visuals. I can't go to a 9 or even a 10 because this is kind of an established area. I think that's why it ended up producing at the grossing levels that it was capable of is because it felt a little familiar and you're not asking the audience to go in a direction they've never been before, but you're still at least giving them something they haven't seen before. So I'm going to go with an eight. I went with a 6.5 simply because, again,
1: there have been... So many space films, other than the fact, I mean, I'm giving it a 6.5 based on the fact of it being visually beautiful, the type of film it was overall, the overcoming adversity, the whole relationship between Stone and Kowalski. So I'm going with a 6.5 because of that, because it's, to that extent, it's unique. Otherwise, this is a 5, because it's just run-of-the-mill type of thing overall. It's the visual and the uh, more tender moments between them that changes this and
0: raises it beyond the 5 to the 6.5 for me. So that's a 7.25 average between the two of us. Classicness, go ahead. I'd found very little that I found a problem with in the film.
1: We have uh, at least a... uh, strong relationship between the two primary characters we have a strong female lead who uh, ultimately prevails the the point down is is that it tends to be just the two actors and there's not a lot of diversity within the cast or how it was done so i'm I'm going with a nine for classicness
0: based on that Boy, I don't know if I would knock this for a lack of diversity when yes, okay, Clooney's your classic white male lead but the secondary guy who gets killed again, he's barely in the film and it's primarily his voice but you would do at least see his holy head is Indian so there is some minor diversity and your primary character is still a woman so I don't know if I'd knock it on that and I don't find anything really to detract from this film either 10 years on where this movie will get off a few points for me is, as I've mentioned many times on the show, I started a seven and I either work backwards, which is often what I normally do, or I work forwards because it's not more than 10 years old, it doesn't really get into the timelessness factor yet for me. I got to think that we at least have a generation with a film before it kind of speaks to timelessness. 10 years, not so much. Getting on 20 to 25, then we can start really talking. So stuff that's about 1998 right now would be in the timelessness kind of factor, if you ask me. It's also nothing that I thought was like truly innovative or ahead of its time or stuff that, where you could give it some plaudits for subject material that was well ahead or well-established. This was kind of just a really well executed, well-made, well done novel sci-fi space thriller that didn't involve horror elements, but still was keeping you on the edge of your seat. So I, I have it a little bit up just for its level of execution and the fact that this film does bring out the thrills in spades, if you ask me, when she's lost and hurtling through space or when she's bouncing off of the atmosphere to try and get back home or any of those moments. I still find this movie gripping, and I think that's an underdiscussed part of classicness that we often don't get to. I had an eight. So that would be an 8.5 average between the two of us. Okay. Rewatchability. I have not watched this again since the first time I did about 10 years ago. And I don't think this is something that I would necessarily go out of my way to put on. But it's also not something that I would be objecting to having on or if somebody suggested it that, sure, we can throw that on. I mean, I'm not not going to be here for a 90 minute thrill ride. That's that's just fine with me. And I don't think we had any real problem watching it the other day. No. So leaving it on, I have it slightly higher because I think once it's on and you kind of get engrossed in the movie, you know, it passed the first couple of minutes where, yeah, you, you don't really need to watch the, the first few minutes. It's, it's good the first time that you watch it, but you kind of want to get to about the debris field scene and then get, get, kind of moving. And once it gets to that point and it kind of starts you down the train tracks, you know exactly what you're going to get from this movie. So I had a two for putting it on. I had a 3.5 for leaving it on for a 5.5.
1: Well, this is one where it'll all depend on what mood I'm in. If it, if I'm going through the channels and it comes up, I, you know, or somebody really asks, yes, I'll watch it. I'm not going to go out of my way. I may not even leave it on if the movie is on when I'm in the room because, again, it just depends on what kind of mood I'm in. I think the movie, having a, an idea of exactly what's going on in the film and where things are, it loses something. And the fact that you lose the drama of what's occurring, I, I'm going to go with a 4.5 for rewatchability
0: based on that. Okay, so that's a 5 average between the two of us. For audience score, we had an 80% for Google users and a 79% for Rotten Tomato users, giving us a 7.95. So to recap the categories, we had a 6.5 average between the two of us for Legacy, an 8.5 average between the two of us for Impact and Significance, a 7.25 for Novelty, an 8.5 for Classicness, a 5 for Rewatchability, and a 7.95 for For an audience score, giving us a final total of 44.2. And placing it on our list between Meet the Parents and The Dark Knight Rises. (laughs) Okay. A couple of recent films from this season, even. Yes. Remaining questions for this one. How long before the rescue crews find her?
1: they know about where she is. I think that completely depends on where exactly she landed. I mean, did she land? uh, Obviously, it's a greener area, so it's not an arid location. I mean, are we talking about in the recesses of of Brazil, or are we talking about how we might have some difficulty retrieving her from Burma?
0: Yeah, that was my weird outlier thought was, If she lands in, like, Sudan. (laughs) Yeah. You know, or uh, she emerges from the Nile in Egypt. You know, how how are we necessarily getting her back? But outside of those, I I have to assume that there will be some diplomacy going on, but that for the most part, my anticipation would be that uh, we would have probably some form of search and rescue within a week that she would be recovered and returned home. That'd be my guess. I think it would be
1: a little earlier, quicker than that. Because there's not any idea of how if she's injured, not any idea of whether she has any kind of
0: availability of food or water. Well, I'm not saying that would be the rescue or whatever that wouldn't find her before then, potentially. But
1: well, they, they, they had
0: it tracked. I mean, they knew. By GPS,
1: where she is, it's a question of having the wherewithal of going and, and retrieving her. You know, in some countries that'll be a no problem. So other countries will want the the recognition of having r- retrieved her themselves and then bringing her to the to NASA's purview within their control. That's going to take more than anything. Is the politics involved? But, uh, you know, I think there's going to be all due haste to recover her because they don't know exactly what kind of condition she's in.
0: Do you think someone could have actually survived all of this? Well, it was plausible, but boy, you know. I mean, there are so many things that go just exactly right. So she's floating off into space and he, out of the million miles of space, finds her floating around. So that was already one where you have to kind of like buy into the movie rules a little bit to kind of buy into. And I'm not sure that I quite get there, but okay, fine. She has to hang on by the ropes to the international space station from the parachute that apparently was ejected from whatever craft had come before it, which I'm not sure that that thing would have gotten hung up on there in the first place. Otherwise, She doesn't even make it to the International Space Station. She, on multiple occasions, has to crawl on the outside of these gigantic structures and somehow like, not float away or whatever else. The amount of just random things within the course of this movie that she had to inevitably get right, it only could have worked in a movie form.
1: It would have been difficult for anybody to have done it. She would have had to have been a very highly trained, highly conditioned person. And from what I'm gathering, her level of training and physical fitness was not necessarily to the highest level of NASA standards.
0: Well, I mean, obviously she'd been doing stuff, but six months of training versus years of like intense training. I think she was up there for one specific purpose and it was not necessarily her knowledge of how to survive in space.
1: Correct. I mean, there's a reason why experience matters and having been through a bunch of these, such as Kowalski, he's going to have a much more advanced knowledge and Uh, appreciation of what needs to be done in order to survive. I think it would have been more plausible for Kowalski to have survived than her.
0: Yeah, I would buy that too. Now, with the possibility that we have more civilians traveling to space, obviously being the weirdo billionaires uh, (laughs) with phallic rockets, if offered, would you ever willingly want to go to space? No, I have no, no interest. I'd... See, I said I wanted to be an astronaut when I was like four or five or six. But looking at something like this, I'm like, there's no fucking way. <laughs> uh, I, 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 there's certain things I
1: don't do because I know that what my luck is and my physical limitations. I don't I've never downhill skied because I know that the first time I did it, I'd break a leg. I don't ride a motorcycle because I know that I would end up in a crash. And going into space,
0: you might as well just put me in the urn. Yeah, there's just no way I I would. Unless absolutely forced into it by the fact that we now have to become an interplanetary species and exist outside of Earth. There's just no way. I'm not doing it. It's one thing to dream about crawling aboard the Millennium Falcon. It's another thing entirely to want to strap yourself to whatever nuclear missile that they keep sending people up in.
1: Yes, and I certainly wouldn't want to go if Meryl Streep and
0: Mark Rylance were with me. Oh, 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 oh. yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I was, I was drawing a blank on which movie you were referencing there, but yeah, don't I look. I still up. think that holds the record. For most watched single film on Netflix? Yeah, it was, wow. I
1: just, it was one of those movies where you cringe because there was so much
0: that was plausible. Last one I have. Now that we've covered both this season, this was one of the closest Best Picture races ever in 2013. Did the Academy get it right by awarding Quaron Best Director and 12 Years a Slave Best Picture? Yes. That's my thought.
1: I mean, overall 12 Years a Slave was a beautiful film, not just for its its story and its visual, but for all all of what uh, it was about in the message that it had. And while this was a, a beautifully done film and well-paced and well-directed and all that I think 12 Years a Slave should have been given best picture based upon
0: the overall message. I agree that 12 Years a Slave is the best picture on a standpoint of what's the more important story to tell. Quaron deserves to get it for best director based on the technical marvel and all of the other pieces that he had to accomplish to pull this kind of a movie off and for it to be as successful as that. But I'm pretty sure that 12 Years a Slave also got best adapted screenplay, which makes more sense for the two different types of movies that they are. Not that I don't think Steve McQueen in a normal year could have very easily won for 12 Years a Slave or would have been deserving. But in that year, when it was these two movies, I think this actually might be one of the rarer examples where they got it right. Do you have any remaining questions? No, I actually... uh...
1: Oh, I have one. They allude to the fact that her name is Ryan, and he asks her why her name is Ryan, what the story
0: is. Well, it's about the time the debris field hit. We never got an answer. My guess is, is she's named after somebody within, a, like, the family or somebody significant. That It's either that or, much like the joke from How I Met Your Mother, she was supposed to be a boy, and when she came out... <laughs>
1: Yeah. Final thoughts for the week? None, really. I mean, I'm. I, there's several films. Flowers is coming out here in a few weeks. I'm looking forward to that. There are a few other things that are, that have been released that I may want to go see. So we'll see how the fall season
0: is. I'm glad that the screenwriters are back to work. Agreed. That would be pretty much where I'm at as well is, is just kind of looking forward to what the fall film schedule is going to be, what the recognition and uh, I guess awards plays are going to end up being. But that, that's really where my attention will lie for the next several months as far as film. So I guess that'll do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. A policeman's job is only easy in a police state. Next week, for our 185th episode, we discuss the crime thriller Touch of Evil from 1958, celebrating its 65th anniversary. Directed and written by Orson Welles, co-written with Witt Masterson, Paul Monish, and Franklin Cohen. Music by Henry Mancini, starring Charlton Heston, Orson Welles, Janet Leigh, Marlena Dietrich, and ja Zsa Gabor. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in in our fun. You can also email the show at the new or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast or find us on Instagram, X, or TikTok at the handle at GMO Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.